So friends, today we are continuing in our series through the book of Proverbs. And after this sermon, we're gonna take three week, a three-week break and do a mini-series on uh, what the Bible has to say about the relationship between God's kingdom on earth and other kingdoms that currently govern the earth. Okay, so how are Christians meant to view earthly governments, earthly rulers, presidents? Uh, how do we not place our hope in them, but also not be dismissive, dismissive of them? Uh, how do we avoid worshiping them as the solution, but also avoid demonizing them as if they're the ultimate problem? Okay, uh, we'll explore that more, and we thought this might be a good topical break in the middle of our Proverbs series uh, that hopefully will both enlighten and soothe us as we especially go through this current political climate today. Okay, so stick around for that. Um, but for now, let me redirect our hearts to the passage that we have uh, in the printouts today, which is at the, last, the very last section of Proverbs chapter four. And what we see here Solomon do in the very last section of Proverbs chapter four is that he does a deeper dive on a particular subject that he's already touched on a few times before this, okay? Which is the subject that we've been kind of talking about throughout our, our liturgy, and that is the subject of the heart. The heart. Take a quick look at your pronounce. Take a quick look at verses 20 to 22, okay? And you'll see there that in verses 20 to 22, Solomon mentions a few body parts, right? He talks about the ears, he talks about the eyes, which is the sight, okay? And then skip to verses 24 to 27, he mentions a few more body parts. He talks about the mouth, the eyes. He mentions the feet twice in the last two verses. You see that? Now sandwich in between all of these exterior body parts, at the center of this poem, which is verse 23, Solomon mentions a particular internal body part that he calls the heart. The heart that you must keep God's word at. It, it needs to get there somehow. Okay, what's he trying to say here? Well, he's trying to say that if you want to be wise, if, if you want to be a wise person, that's where you got to get God's word to, your heart. You might start by listening to it, right, the ears. You might start by reading it, the eyes, verse 20, 21. But if it doesn't somehow find a way into your heart, you'll never be wise, he says. You'll never be wise. You may be able to do wise things, you see, but that's different than actually being wise internally. What's the difference? Well, let me ask you this. If you're, if you're a Christian here today, have you ever felt like uh, you're very good at doing the motions of Christ, but yet deep inside, you don't actually feel like Christ? You know what I'm talking about? You're doing all the right Christian things you're supposed to do, but it almost feels like for some reason your Christianity is just constantly stuck in the exterior of who you are. You're good at mimicking Jesus' life, but you rarely truly feel alive in him. If that's you, or if you experience those moments, which I do, you know why that is? Solomon's saying here, it's because God's word hasn't pierced all the way into your heart. You've read it, you've listened to it, but it hasn't abided in you. It hasn't made a home out of you. So you might be able to obey wise commands, but you're not necessarily yet a wise person. And there's a fatal difference between the two, which is what today's passage is all about. 
okay? How to get God's word all the way into your heart and actually become wise beyond just in your behavior, okay? Let's get into it. This is the word of God, taken from Proverbs chapter four, verse 20 to 27. My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Thus says the Lord. Okay, three things I wanna point out from the passage today about the heart. First, it's something only God's word can heal. Second, the way we know it's been healed. And third, the reason it's so hard to heal. Okay, it's, it's something only God's word can heal. How do you know it's been healed and why it's so hard to heal? All right, let's go to our first point. The heart, your heart, my heart, is something only God's word can heal. Let's go to verse 20. Solomon says there, my son, be attentive to my words, or really he means there, be attentive to God's words, right? Because that's what the father's been trying to pass down to the son throughout the book of Proverbs, God's word. My son, he says, be attentive to God's word, to God's commandments, incline your ear to it, that means be listening to it. Don't let it escape your sight, meaning keep reading it. Because if you do those things, it'll eventually get all the way down into your heart, verse 21, 22 says, and you'll find what? healing to all of your flesh. It means you'll find healing in every area of your life. Now, I think uh, we gotta take a second to clarify here, because that phrase healing, it's taken a whole different meaning today, hasn't it, right? More often than not, what we mean is when we say healing today is that we feel uh, rested, we feel rejuvenated, right? So you would go on a holiday and a trip, and you'll take a picture of it, and then you'll post on Instagram, and on your comments, you'll say, healing, right? That means you you felt uh, rested and rejuvenated, nothing wrong with that, I could actually use some of that myself right now. But I don't know if that's quite what Solomon meant here, or God meant here, when he said healing. Here, uh, when God says healing, it has a lot less to do with rest, and a lot more to do with transformation, okay? It's about transformation. When, When God's commands, pierces deeply into your heart, Solomon's saying here. It'll heal you, it'll transform you, it'll transform every area of your life. And, and the question that I think we all may be asking is that, how can a list of commands heal us? Right, that's a weird connection to make. How, how can a list of commands renew us? I mean, commands usually guide us, right? Commands can direct us but I've never heard of a list of commands healing us. That's not usually what I would, the word I would, I, would, I would use to describe commandments. And why is that? Well, perhaps it's because our view of God's commands is a bit skewed, it's a bit off. What if I tell you that God's commands actually isn't just a list of rules to follow, but it's first and foremost a picture of what a healed human being looks like. What if God's commands aren't just disjointed rules to follow, but it's first and foremost a a description 
of what a whole and healed human being looks like. What do I mean? Let's take the Ten Commandments, for example, okay? Uh, what's the first commandment? Worship, God alone, right? Okay? If you do that, you know what else you won't do? You won't worship false gods, right? Which is commandment number two. You won't make idols, uh, okay? If you don't worship false gods, you know, if you don't make things like money, uh, popularity, relationships, career, into things that you worship and live for, you know what else you won't do? You probably won't be jealous of your neighbors all too often, which is commandment number 10. Why? Well, because you don't really care who has more than you. It doesn't matter to you that much. Um, you don't worship those things that they possess. You're not gonna want it so badly like people who do and are willing to even lie, steal, and cheat for it, which are commandments number seven, eight, and nine. Some, even, some worship money and popularity and career and relationships so much, they're not just willing to lie, steal, and cheat for it. You know what else they're willing to do for it? They're willing to kill for it, which is commandment number six. And if you've done any of that, you know what else you've done? You've, you've lifted up God's name in vain, or in other words, you've represented God's name to the world badly, which is commandment number three. You've also dishonored the authority structures you have in your life, which is what parents represent in commandment number five. You've broken the law, right? You've done things that aren't right. And most likely, if you've gone to that kind of low, you've skipped a lot of church, which is commandment number three, right? Four, four. Thank you, Westminster grad. What if, okay, what if the Ten Commandments isn't just a list of rules we gotta follow to keep God happy? I mean, it is that, obeying God pleases him. But what if it's first and foremost an intricate description of what a healed and whole human being looks like? A healed and whole human being who worships and trusts God and God alone, which means they probably go to church a lot, and that don't turn to money and comfort and career. They don't make those things into false gods and idols, which means they don't envy and compare themselves with their neighbors all that much. In fact, they trust God so much with their life, they don't feel the need to accumulate more through lying and stealing and cheating and killing, which also means they're not in trouble with the authority structures in their life, and they've represented God's name honorably during their time on earth. You see, God's commands isn't just disjointed rules to follow externally. They're descriptions of how a healed human being as originally intended by God lives their life. And that's how you can tell, Solomon's saying here, whether or not you're a wise person or whether you're someone that just behaves wisely. See, someone who just does wise things we can all obey the same set of rules. But if you're just doing them because they're disjointed rules you feel like you gotta follow for whatever reason, um, it's gonna feel disjointed, it's gonna feel disintegrated, it's gonna feel incoherent. They're just random sets of rules that, that we follow for you know, whatever reason, to appease God, to appease our families, to look good in front of our church friends. But someone who's actually wise in their heart, in their person, obey these rules as an outpouring of a healed heart. 
You see the difference? I think I'm, I don't know if I'm quite pinpointing the difference with my words, but I'm hoping you guys can kind of get what I'm trying to put down, right? Somebody who, who's healing their heart, their obedience will feel more like a coherent whole. You know, it's one big healed life. It's, it's not gonna feel like they're just offering to the world more, a set of rules to obey. It's gonna feel like they're offering to the world a wellspring of life pouring out of a healed heart, which is what verse 23 says. It's, it's whole, it's not disjointed. Are you merely a rule follower, Solomon's asking here, or are you a healed man? Both might do the same wise behaviors, but the second is the one who's actually wise. Now let's keep digging into this because it's still kind of hard to pinpoint the difference. How can you tell the difference, you know, exactly? How can you tell whether or not you're merely a rule follower that just does wise commands on the external of your person versus whether or not you're a healed man in your heart? God's laws has pierced so deeply in there um, to where you obey and live life holistically as a healed person because they both can kind of look the same externally, right? So let's, let's go to our second point about the heart, uh, this is the way that we can know it's been healed. There's, there's a way to figure it out. Now externally, it may look the same, because at the end of the day, what people see is that you're just obeying the same set of rules, okay? Um, but there is a way to tell the difference, Solomon continues here, by mentioning two specific things. Two specific things that only wise people with healed hearts can do. What are they? First, he says, your speech, a truly wise person, okay, if you're a truly wise person, your speech will always be, tr will always be true in life-giving. Number two, if you're a truly wise person, you will prioritize immediate obedience over long-term anxiety. If you're a wise person, your speech will always be true in life-giving, and two, you will always prioritize immediate obedience over long-term anxiety. Where do we see those in the passage? Let's first take a look at verse 24. Solomon says there, put away from you crooked, what? Speech and devious talk. Now why did Solomon choose to mention the mouth here first in verse 24, immediately after he talks about the heart in verse 23? Well, it's because our mouth, our speech, our tongue, is the best mirror to our heart. It's, it's hard to fake. Remember, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, 35, remember what he said? He said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures bring forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasures bring forth evil. The mouth is the closest organ to the heart so to speak, and our speech is the best representation of what's in there, okay? And that's why, friends, it's so hard to control. Remember James 3 famously says, for every kind of beast and bird and uh, of reptile and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame what? The tongue. <laughs> you know why that is? Because it's too tightly knitted with our hearts, and sometimes it surprises even us, doesn't it? 
You ever said something to someone and go, I'm so sorry, I don't know where that came from. You ever experienced that? It's hard to tame. I have said many more foolish things in my lifetime than I have committed foolish acts. There are about a thousand things I wish I would have done differently, but there are about a million things I wish I would have said differently. Why is that? Because it's much harder to fake my words than it is to fake my behavior. This week has been a little bit messy and uh, windy for me. Now, you would have no idea how frustrated I was with this week just by looking at the things I did. Because I did all my responsibilities well, I think, I hope. I spent time with my kids and I enjoyed them. But if you ask Tati, (laughs) there has been moments where my frustration slipped out and guess where it slipped out from? My mouth. (laughs) My words. It's just much harder to fake. You'll be able to tell whether or not someone's really wise or just fake wise by listening to how far crooked speech and devious talk is from their mouth. Are you wise? But their decisions matter too, okay? It's not just what they say, it's also what they do, which is what verses 25 to 27 talks about. Let's take a look at verse 25. Uh, Solomon there mentions the eyes again, but this time it's a little bit different than verse 22 because earlier in verse 22, Solomon mentions the eyes as a receiving agent, right? The eyes take in the word of God. It reads the word of God. It looks at the word of God. It's kind of receiving it. But now in verse 25, the eyes are described not as a receiving agent, but as a discerning agent. It's a decision-making agent. Look at what it's doing. Uh, Let your eyes... Look directly forward, he says, and your gaze be straight before you so that it could do what? So that it could ponder the path of your feet so that it can help you decide where to go. So it's, it's a deciding agent, not a receiving agent. But here, here's the, the important part. Uh, look at what wise eyes focus on. They aren't mainly focusing on the long-term path ahead, are they? You see? They're not mainly focusing on the thousand different potential path options that they may or may not encounter two, four, 10 years from now. What are they focusing on? Look at verse 26. Wise eyes focus on the path of the feet. In other words, they focus on the next step. The next step. The foot is mentioned again in verse 27 for a second time. Don't swerve to your right, to your left. Turn away, what? Your foot from evil, he says. You know what this is saying? This is saying that as important as future trajectories are, as important as long-term planning is, as important as strategic forecasting might be, you know what the wise person values more than their future what-ifs? The next right thing. The next righteous step. Now, sometimes the next right thing and the long-term plan matches up. And if that's the case, 
Hallelujah, praise the Lord, easy call, right? Just do that. But other times, the next right thing and your long-term strategic plans don't match up. And you know what you feel in those moments? Anxiety. You know the decision God would be most happy with, and you also know how much that might potentially set back your long-term plans. What does the wise man do in those moments? What do they do? They don't squint their eyes to zoom in on the many misty potential long-term paths that may or may not happen. They bow their gaze down to their feet and they make a call based on the next right thing. Well, what if this happens, Tez? What, what if that happens? I know, the wise man says. There's so many what ifs but I'm not here to soothe my what ifs. I'm here to please my Lord. You can tell that someone's not just fake wise when you see them prioritize immediate obedience over long-term anxiety. Are you wise? Now, if you're anything like me, at this point of the passage, at best, our answer would be, maybe, <laughs> right? Maybe I'm wise. Most of the time, I know I'm not wise. Sometimes, maybe I am, but very rarely can I have the boldness and confidence to say that I am wise. Why? Because these key performance indicators are just too revealing. How you speak, you know, all these decisions that you make. And Solomon assumed it'll be hard as well. Look at verse 22, Solomon says, let not wisdom escape from your sight. Wisdom there is portrayed as having feet, wanting to have nothing to do with you, always trying to run away. <laughs> you have to catch him, you know? You gotta keep it uh, in your heart. The phrase keep it or guard it there in the Hebrew mimics a prison guard who's like watching a prisoner so that they don't escape. You gotta be vigilant, verse 23 says. It doesn't seem easy, it doesn't seem natural for us to be wise. It takes so much effort, it's so tiring, but why does it feel so hard? Why does it feel so hard for God's word to abide in our heart and heal us from the inside out and make us truly wise, not just fake wise? Well, let's go to our last point. The reason our hearts are so hard to heal. It's so hard to heal because, or at least how the heart is meant here in our passage, the heart is so hard to heal because it's an entity that's below the surface, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's harder to interact with your heart compared to interacting with your hands, for example. My brain can tell my hands to move according to God's word, but my brain can't just simply tell my heart to be healed by God's word. Like, you can't just willpower that to be, right? And before I continue here, let me just say, uh, I'm not saying that your actions don't affect your heart, okay? Willpower can affect your heart, if it can't, then Solomon wouldn't have told us in verse 20 to 21 to read and listen to God's word and study it, you know, and memorize it and hear it as a pathway to healing the heart. He's saying do that and your heart will be healed. So obviously, willpower and action activities, vigorously, deeply memorizing God's word, meditating on it, that can, that can heal your heart in the process. 
But just that alone isn't enough. What do I mean? The best explanation for this, perhaps, uh, can be found in Jesus' words himself. When in John chapter five, you remember this story? He told the Pharisees, which were like a group of people who really, really, really knew their Bibles, right? They knew the Old Testament front and back, they memorized it, they studied it, they, they listened to it. Uh, they externally have done everything Solomon commanded us to do here. They know God's word. But yet, John chapter five, verse 38, Jesus told them, and I quote, you do not have this word abiding in you. You know it, you've read it, you've heard it, but you don't have it abiding in you. You've read and studied God's word your whole life, but it hasn't pierced your heart. It hasn't been kept in your heart. It hasn't made a home within you. You know why? Well, because apparently just studying and reading and learning and listening to the Bible isn't enough. Okay, so then what's the missing ingredient? What must they do, okay, to get God's word in their heart? Well, let me first tell you what they shouldn't do. Uh, they shouldn't read their Bibles less. Okay, that's not the command here. Jesus didn't say, you don't have God's word abiding in you, so therefore, stop reading it. No, he said, you don't have God's word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom God has sent. That's the missing ingredient. You do not believe in the one whom God has sent. You, you search the scriptures, Jesus continues in the next verse. You, you study it, you, you dive deep into it because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, he says. Jesus is saying there, look, if you wanna get God's word in your heart, beyond just your behavior, if you wanna really be wise, don't stop reading it you just gotta read it differently. You gotta start seeing how every part of it bears witness to Jesus and to his cross. Or else, it'll never impact your heart. Or else, it'll, it'll never abide in you. It's just gonna be a list of rules, okay? Okay, so I gotta read the Bible and see how it points to Christ, but, but how do I do that? Like, how does, for example, our passage today bear witness about Christ. I don't see his name mentioned here anywhere. Well, do you know of anyone else whose heart and life is perfectly whole as described in this passage? Do you know of anyone else um, who's not only obeyed God's word externally but embodied it perfectly in their heart and their whole person? Do you know anyone else who out of the wholeness of their heart always brings forth words of truth and life? Who's never said anything crooked or devious? Whose decisions always prioritize next step obedience rather than long-term anxiety? Do you know anyone else like that? Who is this person? Who's the only one who succeeded to do all the things Solomon commands in our passage? It's Jesus. Don't you see? This is about him. Every word he said was pure. Every step he took was righteous. Aligned to the Father's will. And you know where that led him? It led him to a cross. To a cross. Why? 
Why did someone whose words and decisions were always perfect end up on a cross? Well, the Bible tells us to pay for all the evil words and decisions that our foolish hearts have made along the way. That's why. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus kept the course not for himself, but for us who couldn't. See, if you think God's word is just a tool to inform fools like you and I, it'll never pierce your heart. But when you see God's word embodied, when you see God's word take on flesh and died for fools like you and I, then it might. You will never align your steps to God's will at the potential of long-term cost until you see Jesus align every step of his to God's will, knowing full well the cost. You will never be committed to drive crooked speech far away from your mouth until you see Jesus keeping his mouth shut like a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah says. And you know why he paid the cost? You know why he submitted himself to the slaughter? Because if he didn't, you and I would have been dead fools. That's why. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, read your Bibles, incline your ear to it, don't let it escape from your eyes, use the same level of urgency and tenacity that Solomon describes in this passage as you study it. But don't make the same mistake the Pharisees made. Try and see how every passage that you read and study points you to the love of Christ that he's completed for you in the work of his salvation on the cross. Remember again, Christian, every time you open that Bible, every time you see a rule you can't follow, remember again the joy of your salvation. Remember what he's done. Be continually healed and renewed as you behold his cross and are transformed from one degree of glory to another every single day. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're a Christian uh, who just hasn't really felt like you've internalized your Christianity. You know, Christianity is just your parents' religion. Or maybe Christianity is just a word printed out in your katepe. But it's not something you feel like you've kept in your heart. Then my hope is that this passage might give you clarity. Just obeying more rules won't do it. Only the one whose scripture bears witness to can do it. Only the one who died on that cross for you can do it. You need to start there. You need to start by receiving what he did. Full atonement of sin. Full cleansing, full forgiveness can only be achieved by he who was made to look like a fool on a cross so that you and I may enjoy the reward of his wisdom. Will you begin there? Be attentive to him. Hear the invitation he's giving you. See what he's offering you on that cross. And may your hearts be healed. May you be renewed. 
not just in your behavior, but in your heart. And may you slowly become more and more to be like the person and the human being God has originally intended all of us to be by the surpassing mercy of his grace.